The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. A few years ago, I went on a road trip with my wife and my sister and brother-in-law, and we were helping move them from South Florida over to Dallas, Texas. So we loaded up in a Dodge Caravan that was converted into like one of those van life vans. You know what I'm talking about? It's a thing millennials do these days. Uh, And so we loaded up in their van and we're going to help them move and we're going to take turns driving from South Florida to Dallas. And uh, my brother-in-law and sister, they're better at this kind of thing than than I am. They wanted to kind of treat us to a fun experience. They had these ambitions of taking us to uh, maybe stop somewhere on the 22-hour drive, somewhere kind of cool, a part of the country we've never seen before. Maybe we could spend a little time resting there and enjoying a different part of the country. But what actually transpired was something altogether different. We uh, drove through the night. We kind of planned things last minute. We started our trip at 10 p.m. We drove through the night. And then basically we kept taking turns and then got exhausted. And our only stop the entire journey to Dallas was the middle of nowhere, Mississippi. And it wasn't small town Mississippi. That has charm, okay? It wasn't that. It was the bush. There was nothing around. We were at a gas station. And we were in the middle of nowhere. The people were interesting. Uh, it's maybe who you, like the kinds of things you might expect to see in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi. And uh, we're like making our pour over coffee, again, very millennial, in the back of the van, the little kitchen, making pour over coffee, sitting on the back of the van, uh, just enjoying the beauty of the country, okay, there in Mississippi. And we end up just saying, look, you know, we could try and find a cool spot, but let's just get to Dallas. We're exhausted. We're ready to be there and help you guys moving in, and we don't have much time. And so we just did that. Now, I feel like there are two types of people in this world when it comes to road trips. Road trips are one of those iconic friendship experiences. Maybe you have a road trip story with some friends. But there are the scenic route people in in road trips, right? Or in places, going from place to place. And then there's the efficient route people. Okay, now show of hands if you're a scenic route person. Let me see your hands. You're a scenic route person. Like we'll get there eventually. We'll get there. Like it's gonna be the same result. Okay, and then who are my efficient route people? Okay, efficient route. So the scenic route people, you guys have more fun. Okay, you guys are just generally more at peace and have greater joy in your life. The, the, the efficient route people, like if it wasn't for us, and I'm in this category, if it wasn't for the efficient route people, nothing would ever get done, okay? And we'd never get anywhere. So we need each other, all right? And the, the thing is, there's reason for, and there's occasions for, the scenic route. Uh, there's moments we need the scenic route. There are things you appreciate and get to enjoy taking your time and stopping in places that are better than the middle of nowhere, Mississippi, okay? Uh, nothing against Mississippi. I love Mississippi if you're from Mississippi. I have family from Mississippi, actually, Amy's family, so don't, don't go there, okay? No, but we need the scenic route, but, but the efficient route is helpful too. So here's why I bring this up. There are some times when we come to a passage in the Bible and we're coming to a particular area of teaching and we're doing the efficient route thing where we're taking a passage from the Bible It's commanding us or giving us instruction on something with some pretty crystal clear clarity. And we don't need to like get fancy about it. We we just need to apply it. We need to take this wisdom that God is instructing us with and we need to 
implement it in our lives. And so just very efficient. Here's what you need to do. Here's what God calls you to believe and trust in. Bam, go do it. But then there are other times when in teaching through the scripture, in order for us to gain a full appreciation for the beauty and depth of God's word, and in order for us to be able to actually arrive at that destination, we need to take the scenic route. And we need to slow down our pace and make a couple of pit stops on the way so that when we finally get at our destination and we get down to the practical, we get down to, hey, here's how you apply this, we have a greater depth and appreciation for what we're talking about. We're gonna do that today with the topic of friendship. And uh, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down the title of the message. Uh, I'm typically not very good at coming up with sermon titles. I'm quite proud of this one. I hope you like it. It's called The Trinity and How to Be a Great Friend. Okay, so that's gonna be our time. And uh, hopefully we'll all get connected and this is not gonna feel like wandering around aimlessly and somehow calling that the scenic route. Hopefully we're gonna get somewhere. Uh, but that's our message title, The Trinity and How to Be a Great Friend. Okay, here we go. First John chapter four, starting in verse seven, we're gonna read through this passage, returning to the passage we started last week. Here's what the apostle John writes. He says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Here in this passage, we started talking about this this past week, that the main central command here is that Christians, followers of Jesus, are to love one another. We're to love one another. This should be the general practice of Christians living in the context of church community, that we have this love for one another. And John says that multiple times throughout this passage. And here in this passage, John doesn't just tell us what to do, but he tells us why to do it. He tells us to love one another and he gives us insight into where this love comes from. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing to write down, put this on the screens as well. Here's kind of the big idea, love one another, but then here's where it comes from. Love originates from God, therefore I am to love one another. Look with me, look back down at your passage there in your Bible. Verse seven starts out with love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. Love originates from God, flows from God. And so if we've been born of this God, then we should love one another. Now, this word love in our usage of the word carries with it different 
contexts, different connotations. I can say, I love Santa's white Christmas ice cream that's now available at Publix. Praise God. If you've never tried it, you're welcome, okay? Uh, so I love that ice cream. I also love my children, okay? Now, I use the same word, two different sentences. I mean very different things and in different ways about those two concepts and ideas, but I use the same word. So we should ask the question, if we're to love one another and love originates from God, comes from God, then what is meant by this idea of love? Well, John defines it for us. And the way he gives us a definition is by giving us an example. If you look back down at your passage, John repeats himself twice. He says, first in verse nine, this is how God's love was made manifest. Everybody say manifest. Okay. Uh, somebody at Cooper City didn't say manifest. Let's try that again. Say manifest. Very good. Okay. In this, God's love was made manifest. It was revealed, made known in that God sent his son, Jesus. Then it's repeated again, drop down in the passage where it says in verse 10, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us. How did he love us? By sending his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Now, uh, let's spend a little time on that word propitiation. Last week, we talked about it as well. Let me give you kind of an Old Testament picture for what's being designed or what's being uh, insinuated by this word, and that's going to help us define love. In the Old Testament, there was a series of sacrifices that God prescribed for his people to be able to worship him. How could imperfect people like us live in the presence of a holy and perfect God? Well, one of the ways that this arrangement was made was God gave instructions for his people to offer different types of sacrifices so that their sins might be forgiven. And so one of those sacrifices, you can find it in Leviticus chapter four, is called the sin offering. And the way that the sin offering worked is that, uh, let's say, for example, as it happens multiple times in the first few books of the Bible, let's say the whole nation of Israel sins against God. Like it's this corporate thing, everyone blows it. Here's what would take place. The elders of the people, the representative leaders over the entire nation would come to the temple or the tabernacle. And that place where God's presence dwelt among his people, the elders would assemble together and they would take an animal and they would lay their hands on the head of the animal. And together, each one, now it was 70 of them, so it probably everybody taking turns putting their hands on the head of this animal. And what would happen next is the animal would be given over to the priest and the priest would kill the animal. Now, if you're like, why? Poor animal. Like, what did he ever do that was wrong? That's precisely the point. It was an innocent, blameless animal. And the life of the animal is taken from it. The priest would then, for a sin offering, take the blood of that animal and bring it into the temple, into the tabernacle the holy place, and sprinkle the blood there inside the place where God's presence dwelt in a powerful way among his people. Now, what's happening here? Is this just like a random ritual that's just like these instructions and God saying, hey, you know, do step by step by step and then, you know, you'll be good? Well, it's more than that. There's rich meaning and symbolism. This is given for us to be able to meditate on and think on what's happening here. And as modern readers of the Bible, this is a foreign world to us. We're not familiar with sacrifices and altars and priests. It's very different than our context. Here's what's happening. 
the people who have corporately sinned that are represented by the leadership of the people bring an innocent, blameless animal. And by placing their hands on the animal, here's what's happening. That word to lay hands on is the same word that's used in the other parts of the Old Testament in Hebrew to describe when someone is appointed as a representative. So follow along. Uh, Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, for example, uh, Joshua, who would lead after Moses, Moses places his hands on Joshua, same word, appointing a new representative over the people. So here's what's happening. The elders of the people, the leaders, they come with their sacrifice. They lay their hands, appointing that animal as the representative for the whole nation. You following? One animal representing the nation, appointed as that substitute. And here's what happens. The life of that animal is taken. Its blood is spilled. And very interestingly, the blood of the animal, which we're told in Leviticus, they had very specific laws about the blood of the animal. They were not to eat the blood or drink the blood of the animal because we're told the life of the animal is in the blood. The blood carries with it the life of the animal. In their imagination, they're viewing. And so the blood, the life of the animal is brought into the temple, into the holy place where no one else in the nation has access. Nobody else can go inside that place, but the blood of this animal can enter into the holy place. Here's what this teaches us. How can sinful people be reconciled to a holy God? Well, we need an innocent, blameless representative. That if we lay our hands on this innocent, blameless representative, this representative can go into the presence of God where we cannot, but only after it has surrendered its life and spilled its blood. Here's what Jesus did for you. When you, by faith, believe in Jesus Christ, when you, by faith, place your hand on Jesus, Jesus, who is blameless and innocent, surrenders his life and sheds his blood on the cross. And then now, Jesus passes through death into the very presence of God. And his life is now resurrected and ascended into heaven. And now, because of what Jesus has done, We don't have to do this ritual every single year where we offer up these sacrifices because by one single sacrifice, Jesus has made propitiation. He's atoned for your sins. You can have access to God because one who is worthy has gone before you. He takes your sin and he washes you clean. This is love according to John. What's the picture of love? It's of someone so thoroughly emptying themselves of any selfishness that they are willing to endure torturous pain and suffering to bring good and blessing to another. That's love. Here's the definition. I want you to write this down. Here's what love is. Love is selflessly seeking the good of another. Selflessly seeking the good of another. It's me doing something good for someone, wanting good for someone without reference to how it, fa- it affects me, even if it's at great cost to me. Love in this sense is different than a business transaction. It's not, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. It's not, I want to earn brownie points and get on your good side so that later on I can get you know, things in return. That is not love. 
Love is pouring myself out, seeking the good of another without reference to how it might affect me. That's the picture we're given. So when John says, love one another because love comes from God, this is the type of love he's talking about. An intense, passionate, selfless, unconditional love. Now, here in this passage, it gives us a sequence, love one another, Love originates from God, but here's the next point in our sequence. If you keep reading in the passage, the reason he says this is because God is love. God is love, therefore love originates from God, and therefore we are to love one another. Two times in the passage, in verses 8 and 16, John makes the statement that I think everybody on planet earth is a fan of. Even if you're someone who doesn't consider yourself a Christian, you can get on board with what John, 1 John 4, 8 and 16 say about God. God is love. God is love. There was uh, one time where I was on a plane ride uh, on my way to Nashville, Tennessee, and I was sitting next to a gentleman who was a med student at Vanderbilt University. And we struck up conversation and this verse came up. And reading it this week made me remember that conversation. And we, we start talking and having conversation, and I, I, I hear pretty quickly, we, uh, he shares with me that he's Muslim, or at least he comes from a Muslim background, and he's kind of in the middle, not sure how, how much he wants to really practice it in his life. And I share about my faith and what I believe, and in our conversation, I, I brought up this verse, God is love, and I asked him if he believed that Allah is love. Do you believe your God is love? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, okay, well, uh, help me understand. Would you agree then that love is to seek the good of another without reference to yourself or something along those lines? Is that what love is, to care for someone else uh, regardless of how it affects you? And he says, yes, of course. And then I respond and say, okay, well, um, help me understand then. How is Allah love in the sense that was there ever a time before creation where Allah was alone? And he says, yes, yes, there was. And we start having this conversation and he brings up, we get to the crux of the matter and he's, he's thought of Christianity, he's explored it, but his big issue with Christianity was the Christian understanding of God as a Trinity. Maybe you've heard that word before, the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he shared with me how that doesn't make sense. It defies logic. It, do, it breaks down. And so I just couldn't believe in that. And so we're having this conversation and I, I say, well, listen, in order for love to exist, what does it require there being? And we go back and forth, eventually we get to the conclusion, someone to love. So then I ask, well, was there then a time when Allah was not loved because there was no one around to love? And he responded and said, well, I suppose so. And then I asked, can I explain to you why my understanding of God is different? And I began to share about how Jesus, the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. One God who exists in three distinct persons. Before anything was ever created, our God is love in that within God himself, his very being has always existed, this outpouring of love within his very nature, within himself. God within himself with this understanding of God as a trinity, one God who exists in three distinct persons, we can have a view of God where God is not dependent on his creation in order to be loving. You following? If there was just one, right? 
If our God was not a trinity, not triune, a Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God who has existed in three persons for all of eternity, if that was not the case, then God needed to create in order to love. Then God needed to do, he's dependent on his creation in order for love to be activated as an even a possibility. But because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever, for all of eternity, God has been within himself, this loving outpouring fountain of beauty, of self-giving, life-giving love and union within his very nature. Here's how uh, Wayne Grudem uh, put it. He's a theologian. He's got an excellent resource called Christian Beliefs. If you're curious, want to learn more, uh, we recommend that book all the time. But here's what Wayne Grudem gives us in terms of a definition for the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Here's what, it, what he says. He says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Okay, let's break this down. God eternally exists as three persons. Eternally as in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not like there's sequence to them in terms of who came first. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal in terms of they've, they've all been eternal from the very beginning. One God who has always existed in these three persons. And then he na names them, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are different persons within God. So there are three persons. At the same time, each person who is fully God, there's also one God. Now, you hear that definition and you're like, I kind of understand where that guy was coming from, saying like, this does not make logical sense. Like, how can he be one and three? How does that even, how is that even possible? And one of the things we talk about often around here, we come to these moments when we pursue with our minds who this God is, that we come to these moments when our categories are broken, where there's mystery and we can't fully compute and comprehend. And here's what we'd say. If you came across an inspired book, a book that claimed to be inspired and teach you about God, and you were able to read through the entire book and fully comprehend in your finite human brain every detail about the God you're reading, well, then he must be a very small God. In fact, one of the reasons we should be encouraged in our faith, in the truth of our faith, is the fact that we come to these moments of mystery where we can't fully comprehend God because then it's like, man, who could make that up? I mean, if you're going to make something up, something that's bite-sized, something you can hold on to, but this concept of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's no other world religion that makes that claim about God. It's completely unique to Christianity, and therefore only Christians can make the claim. God is love. Not that he became loving, that God is love. Uh, Michael Reeves, in his book on the Trinity, he talks about how if there wasn't a Trinity, if it was just a single person God, in the sense that maybe Muslims believe, if there wasn't a Trinity, well, then God would first and foremost be a ruler before he's a lover. You see, because there was a time, if there's a single person God, there must have been a time when nothing else existed, and therefore he could not be loving. Because love, by definition, is to seek the good of another. 
But if we have a Trinitarian, a triune understanding of God, that means that from before the very beginning of time, for all of eternity, if you could just stretch your imagination with me for a moment, before anything else was, God was there and he was not lonely, he was not bored, he was not twiddling his thumbs, he wasn't looking for something to rule, he was completely and thoroughly satisfied in himself, loving and joyful and peaceful, a perfect holy being who out of the overflow and abundance of his perfection spilled out onto creation this invitation to enter into that love. You see, God did not create in order to love. He created out of the overflow of his love. Like a mighty fountain or geyser just springing forth, God has always been springing forth between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, this relationship of love within himself. And so when John says God is love, it's hinting at something profound. Look at what he says next, verse 13 through 15. He hints at this. He brings in, listen for the Trinitarian language. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his, what's the word? And we have seen and testified that the, who is it? The father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So to summarize this, Right in the context of this conversation about God being loved, John talks to us about how the Holy Spirit has been given to us by God to testify that we have partaken, that we abide in God. And we hear that God sends his son, the Father sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus is the one who reconciles us to the Father. And all throughout this passage here, what should be hopefully clear from this is that the Trinity, the Christian understanding of God, it's not describing three different gods who operate in this kind of, you know, like this tribunal or like Supreme Court with three rulers. That's not the image that we're given in Scripture. It's one God. It's not three gods. One God. And a lot of our metaphors that we try and come up with to explain and make sense of this mystery, a lot of them end up breaking down and become unhelpful. So just be cautious. Sometimes we talk about like the egg, right? God is like an egg. You got the shell, the yolk, and the egg white. You got the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The problem with that is the picture we're given in Scripture is not that Jesus is one-third of God. It's not, that's not the way to describe it. So we got to be careful with some of our metaphors that we come up with, right? Some of the shamrock. Even that starts to break down. Or me, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, and I'm also a uh, husband, right? I had three different roles. That's not the picture we're given, the unique personhood of each member of the Trinity just breaks down. So here's where we need to stay. That definition is helpful, that there is eternally a God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person fully God. There is one God. And within this mystery, within this incredible doctrine, is an invitation. You see, for the last uh, few moments, there are some of us who like, Finally, like, let's, let's nerd out together. Like, you're all about it. There are others of us who are like, oh my gosh, I can't. <laughs> I won't make you raise your hand to identify yourself. 
depending on our disposition, some of us are like, yes, I want more of that. And others of us are like, please, can we move on? Point A to point B, okay? But here's why this is so immensely important. The reason we're given this doctrine is not just so we can know a set of facts in our head, but so that we might encounter the living God and experience him in our hearts. You see, all throughout this passage, I don't know if you caught it, there's language that if we truly comprehended it, would just, it, it would just stop you in your tracks. Look at verse 16 again. Read with me, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. On six occasions, right here in this passage, six occasions, John in some combination says, we abide in God, God abides in us, we abide in love. It's like this hodgepodge back and forth, interchanging every type of way of saying the same thing. What's John getting at? Here's the, the picture. God is love. He's always been love. It's who he is by nature. And he invites us as imperfect people to abide in his love, to abide in him, to remain in him, to set up residence in him, and then he takes up residence in us. You see, this is like a picture of all the lines being blurred between us and the presence of God. We abide in him, he abides in us, we abide in his love. It's this picture of us entering in and being immersed in the fountain of God's love that washes over us perpetually so that we become people who are marked by this love. So that we become transformed into people who love one another. John is using this language of abiding straight from Jesus in John 15. When Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Take up residence in me, dwell in me. Here's the invitation from God. It's not just to know in your mind, but to experience in your heart the depths of his love for you, of what his thoughts are towards you. Jonathan Edwards used to tell this illustration about how there's a difference between being told from a friend that honey is sweet and you in your mind coming to know and believe that honey is sweet. And then for you yourself to take a spoon and taste of its sweetness. That's a different type of knowledge. That's a different experience of knowledge. This is God's invitation with his love. When he says, abide in me and I in you, abide in my love. It's an invitation into an encounter with his presence, an encounter with his love for you. So. If this is what John says is who our God is, who the source of love is, how then does this affect our relationships? How does this God then shake up and change the way we approach other people? Well, let's recap. God is love. Love originates from God. Therefore, we're to love one another. So then here's a couple, couple thoughts, couple observations. If this is who our God is, then it is not good for us to be alone. If within God himself, he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If God in his very nature and being, there is community within the being of God. There's relationship within the being of God. 
In Genesis 1 and 2, it says it is not good that man should be alone. We should not be surprised by this, that when humanity is in isolation, things go poorly. When we're alone and lonely and living on an island, apart from others, apart from connection and relationship, things go poorly for us. We were not created to be alone. We were made from a God who is love and who has existed in loving relationship for all of eternity. And so we need relationships. We need people in our lives. We can't do this journey alone. Uh, all the research is backing this up. Uh, it was just shared this morning with me. Pastor Roby shared this study with me this morning from Harvard post-pandemic about the nature and the problem of loneliness just continuing to skyrocket. Here are a couple of the statistics. So in this survey, over a third of Americans reported serious, serious loneliness of feeling either lonely frequently or all the time. One in three. In specific population groups, that same question, 61% of young people ages 18 to 25 said that they experienced feeling loneliness frequently or almost all the time. Mothers of young children, the next highest demographic, 51% of mothers with young children reported feeling seriously lonely. There continues to be in the research significant correlation between the symptoms of loneliness, anxiety, and depression. And yet we live in a society and culture that likes to champion and say, hey, listen, I'll do me, you do you. You don't bother me, I won't bother you. I'll live on my island, you live on your island. As long as we don't cross paths, we're good. And what that starts to spiral out of control in us is this lie that we don't need each other. I'm good, I don't need a friend. Or here's what guys do. What guys often do, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. What guys will often do is we'll spend 30 minutes talking about the volunteer game yesterday, how they beat Alabama and what happened to the goalposts. And we'll talk about, okay, some of the, I'm telling you, okay. We'll talk about, man, laughing at the Yankees. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, let's see who else, oh, I'm gonna get in trouble. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about all, all this stuff, the Dolphins and well, you know, there's a conspiracy about Teddy and Tua and concussion protocols and you know, what's happening. And we'll like spend 30 minutes and listen, I'm here for it. I'll talk, I'll talk. But that's where our relationships end. And as men, we don't know how to talk about, hey, you know, I've got this anger problem or, or I've, I've got this issue happening in my life right now. Or, hey, I've got, this, I've got this difficulty in this relationship or that relationship. We, we don't know how to have those conversations. We're like, oh, can we get back to the, the, the Yankees? And the invitation from God is for you to have relationships with other people. We are created to have friendship, relationship with others. We need to be able to have men in our lives where we can share what's going on. Maybe for you, your, your challenge is anger. Your challenge is lust. Maybe it is a mental health crisis you're walking through. Maybe it is an addiction that nobody else knows about. And the path towards healing looks like moving beyond the Dolphins game and talking about real stuff. We need each other. It's not good for us to be alone. Second, second thing we can learn as we meditate on what the Trinity has to teach for us about friendship is that great friends seek harmony, not unison. 
Great friends seek harmony, not unison. Uh, Bruce Ware, in his book on the Trinity, he uses this illustration, a metaphor, about how in music, there's a difference between harmony and unison. In harmony, you have different voices or different instruments playing different notes to the same song. And in unison, you have multiple instruments or multiple voices singing the same notes to the same song. And harmony in music provides a depth and dimension to the melody that unison simply cannot. You're still singing the same song. The lyrics are still the same. You're on the same page, but you're bringing your unique dimension to it. Here's what we need to learn about as we meditate on the Trinity. God is one God who exists in three persons. There's even a diversity of roles within the the being of God. And yet there's one God. And so we benefit in our lives, we benefit in our small groups, we benefit in our church, when there are people who are different from us that we're in close proximity with and in relationship with. And even as we're following Jesus and singing the same song, because our background is different, because where we come from is different, our story is different, our difficulties and traumas are different, languages we speak are different, That brings beauty and dimension to the song we're singing. So in friendship, we shouldn't look for people who are exactly like me in every way. In fact, we're strengthened when there are people that are different than us. Praise God for friends who are unique and different and provide that harmony. We need to seek harmony, not necessarily unison in our friendships. And here's the final one. Third, great friends selflessly love. They don't selfishly use. Great friends, they don't, they selflessly love, they don't selfishly use. The picture we're given here of what love is, is of this outward flowing fountain that God has within himself, and then it's spilled over onto humanity when God sent his son Jesus. And Jesus is an outpouring and expression as the manifestation of God's love, according to 1 John. Jesus comes and he reconciles us to himself through an act of selfless love. There is a type of friendship, that's supposed friendship, that is really, honestly, it's just, if we said it with coarse language, it's using someone. I have a need, you meet the need, I will use you in my life to meet that need so long as you are useful. And the moment you're no longer useful to me, well, then I will discard you and I will try and find somebody else that I can use. Now, that sounds harsh. That sounds maybe a little bit exaggerated, but many of us have experienced that. See, there's a difference between selfishly using someone and selflessly loving someone. What happens when a community, when a small group, when the members of that community enter into that space, not with the attitude, what am I gonna get from this person and oh, I didn't get anything so I don't wanna go anymore? What happens when everybody comes saying, man, Jesus has so thoroughly loved me. I just want to find someone to encourage today. I want to find someone that I get to serve today to demonstrate the love of Jesus to. What happens then when everybody in that community is doing that same thing? You will experience far more love and benefit in that kind of community than if you went into it saying, okay, what am I going to get? Because a group of people who come together with the mentality, what can I get from this, is a recipe for disaster. I mean, who would want to hang out with a bunch of people who all they care about is themselves? 
All they care about is what's in it for me. I mean, that sounds, that sounds terrible. It sounds exhausting. But the invitation is to enter in saying, what can I give? How can I serve? And you think, well, then who's going to look out for me? Who's going to take care of me? Well, two, two things. This is why we need, first and foremost, an encounter with the fountain of God's love. That we need to be satisfied in the love that God has for us. That we need this awareness. We get that through prayer. We get that through worship. We get that through time spent with him. We get that through moments of silence. We get that through sitting down with our kids and enjoying the gifts God has given us. We get that through time in God's word. We need that. But second, the way that you get cared for is by other people who are trying to do the same thing you're doing. Pouring out love, looking for ways to serve, demonstrating this love that we've encountered through Jesus Christ. What happens when a church starts selflessly loving in this way? What happens when a church rejects the way of the devil? The devil is different from God. The devil is all about inward, turned inward on himself, all about you, all about you, pride. And God, by his nature, is outflowing, serve, pouring out, giving life, showing grace. What happens when a church starts to embody and live like they've been born of this God? Well, Jesus told us. He said, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What did Jesus mean by love one another? Well, he showed us. He gave himself for us. He sacrificed for us. He took his disciples and he got a bucket and a towel and he washed their dirty feet. And he looked at them in the eyes and said, now you go and do likewise and wash each other's feet. You serve each other. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he took wine, symbols of what he was about to go do, the ultimate act of love through his death on the cross. And he gave us a meal to remember his love. In a moment, we're going to partake of that meal, of the bread and the cup. But this is Jesus' invitation to you. And what I would say is if you've never received by faith the forgiveness that comes through a relationship with Jesus, I want to invite you right now to experience for the first time his love and his passion for you, his grace for you, his forgiveness towards you. I want to invite you to, by faith, place your hand on Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust in you that you were the propitiation for my sins. You died for me and I want to follow you with my life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just pray right now that you would work in the hearts of the people who are here at West Pines and those in Cooper City, those watching online. Lord, I ask that if there's a person under the sound of my voice who has been reluctant, maybe afraid, unsure, and has never received by faith the free gift of salvation that is available through Jesus Christ. Father, would you right now open their hearts and open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, the Son of God on the cross, dying in their place, shedding his blood for them, 
buried in a tomb and then risen from the grave. Father, I pray right now you would work in their hearts. In fact, if that's you, if that's where you are and you'd say today, I need to trust in Jesus. I wanna receive what he's done for me. Then right there where you are, you can say in your heart to God, you could say, Jesus, today I believe that you went to that cross for me. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave. And Jesus, I surrender to you as my Lord. You're in charge, I'm not. I surrender to you today. Jesus, may we be a church marked by your love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we just even now, as we close our time together, partaking of this ancient meal, may we just be reminded in a fresh way with all of our senses engaged. May we be reminded of your love for us. And would you transform us that we might be people of love, people marked by that intense, selfless love. We love you, we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if just now you made a decision to put your trust in Jesus, we would love to celebrate that decision in your life. That is the single most significant decision you could ever make. And so what I wanna invite you to do is right around you, there's a connection card in one of the chair backs in front of you or in the front row behind you. And you can check off the box that says today, I decided to follow Jesus. You can fill out your information, drop it off in our giving boxes on your way out today. And we would love to send you a Bible. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to celebrate with you and share with you what this journey of following Jesus looks like. You can also, if you're watching online, you can go to cityrev.org faith. And by clicking on that link, by going to that website, you can fill out that form and we'll follow up with you as well. But church, we're gonna take communion together now, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. I wanna read this to you. If you would go ahead and grab your communion kit. Luke chapter 22. It says, and when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he divided it, he had given thanks and he said, this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I come, the, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When we partake of communion, we're remembering the sacrifice. And so if you're here and you're a friend that's come and you have not yet put your trust in Jesus as your savior, he's not yet your Lord, you've not trusted in him, then we'd ask that you would hold off from taking communion. But if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe even today was the day that you put your trust in him, then we invite you for the first time to take the bread and to take the cup and to remember his sacrifice. So if you would go ahead and peel that top layer off with the bread, and then would you take it when you're ready as we remember his body broken for us? And if you would open up the next portion, 
with the juice. And then when you're ready, remembering the blood of Jesus that was poured out for you, would you take the cup? Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We remember that now. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're in us. You're with us. We're never alone. Help us now as we worship you, as we close our time and leave from this place to remember that you are our King. You're our Lord of Lords. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, let's go ahead and stand together. Let's close and sing. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.